Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey everybody, back on the program today is Jeremy Genovese. He was on episode five of the podcast. He was one of the very first episodes. Um, Saying episode five and saying it was one of the very first is a bit redundant. I'll give you that. Uh, (laughs) Were you thinking that? Probably not. I might be overly critical of myself when I'm sitting alone talking into a microphone. Anyhow... I go off on tangents. This this is no secret to anybody. Uh, <laughs> make sure in uh, if you haven't if you haven't heard the the first time that I had Jeremy Genovese on talking about his book on memory. You remember? Uh, go back and listen to episode five. Um, it's it's not uh, not required. You're still gonna get along just fine with this episode. You're, I'm not gonna lose you, uh, but I think it will help. Uh, I think we'll. Uh, I think it certainly adds to this episode and kind of building on something. So I uh, just wanted to say that up front. If, uh, if you're new to the podcast and you didn't hear that one, uh, you may want to listen to that one, episode five first, and you may enjoy this one a bit more. But anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, back with me for the second and a half time <laughs> on, on the program is Jeremy Genovese, who was uh, episode number five. The reason why I say second and a half was because we just got done talking 
for about 20 minutes here, and then I realized somehow I was not recording. And uh, this is incredibly embarrassing, but uh, it's okay. We're going to, I have, I have a whole bunch of things to talk about. We'll probably recap some of the stuff. Hey, that I, we I, I teach for a living, so so I'm used to saying the same thing over and over again. It's no, it's no problem. <laughs> I do stand up, so it's I'm exactly used to doing the same old routine <laughs> over and over and over. So we're we're gonna we're gonna uh, do this and make it not sound too contrived. Maybe maybe my um, maybe my insights and and um, and uh, various jokes and whatnot will be better this time around. Um, so Jeremy Genovese, um, if, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't remember, uh, which by the way, you should go back and listen to the first episode. It was one that a lot of people mentioned, um, it was one of their favorites when, uh, it, uh, amongst the earlier episodes, got a lot of wonderful comments from you guys and a lot of people requested to have him back on. So, uh, so here he is back. He's the, uh, He's the Associate Professor of Human Development and Educational Psychology in the Department of Curriculum and Foundations here at, uh, at Cleveland State University. And, um, and he's also the author of the book, Remembering Willie Nelson, The Science of Peak Memory, uh, maybe, maybe one of um, the most deceiving titles in all of, uh, all of science, but uh, it's... If, if it, only, right? <laughs> At least I can accomplish something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, uh, and the book is actually based on... Um, I'm going to make you repeat this oh, sure. one more time. That's okay. So I'll tell the story. I'll tell it's the story. actually based on an anecdote. Right, uh, right. Um, so, so here's the story, is that... Uh, I spend my summers at the Chautauqua Institution, which, uh, if you don't know, you should know about it. It's this wonderful, uh, historic, educational institution uh, in western New York on the banks of Lake Chautauqua. And uh, one, so I, I live there for eight or nine weeks of the summer. And there's a character who lives there. He really is a character. His name's Woody Starr. Uh, he has long hair, wears a cowboy hat. He's an extreme extrovert. Woody, I hope you're listening to this. Uh, and he stops and talks to everyone. So, th- so the one thing that people know who go to Chautauqua, they all know Woody. And one day Woody can't, comes up to me, and uh, he tells me about his, that the fact that he knows Willie Nelson. He's friends with Willie Nelson. Uh, he shows me a photograph of himself and Willie Nelson, to whom he bears a slight resemblance. Uh, tells me about this book that Willie Nelson wrote. Um, and, you know, it's fine. It was interesting. But after that event, every time I try to call up Willie Nelson's name, Woody's name comes up, which is like of no use to me whatsoever. And it's a classic tip of the tongue phenomenon, classic tip of the tongue state. state. We've all had them. There's something that you should know. You know that you know it. Uh, and you reach for it in your memory, and something else comes up. Something else is interfering. Uh, and oftentimes something that begins with the same with the same letters, so the same sound. So Willie, Woody, and it's very frustrating for us. And so that's the that's the lead off anecdote to to my book is you know we have these tip of the tongue states. They're very frustrating. They're funny sometimes, right. but often they're frustrating, uh, and they do become more common as we get we get older. So I wanted to talk a little bit about 
about that, about some of the frustrations we have with memory and some of the things that we can do to, to improve our, our, our memories. I guess I should tell right. you, uh, you know, truth in advertising, um, I can't promise you a perfect memory like some books can. <laughs> can. Uh, but there are some things you can do that will help with your memory. Not like some books me- can, like some books do. Do, yes. <laughs> yes, it's, it, that some books do. Um, right. Uh, and even, you know, so, so, you know, when I say the science of peak memory, you know, peak memory may not be a perfect memory. In right. fact, I'll tell you, when you're a memory expert, nothing delights your friends and families more than when you forget something. It's like, oh, the memory expert doesn't uh. know. So, <laughs> so, you know, so, uh, so I, I, you know, I don't have a perfect memory. I think I have a pretty good memory, but it's a trained memory. It's because I use tricks uh, and techniques to, to, uh, keep myself uh, remembering stuff and to learn new stuff. So, and, and these tricks can be learned. Do you yeah. get a lot of that from your wife? Like, oh, oh, constantly. Constantly. Expert. Constantly. Constantly, <laughs> yes. I can see that. Um, yeah, I get that as a comedian. Oh, it's it so funny. Yeah. Profe- Mr. Professional right. Comedian. Well, you know, there's some idea that, that your profession dooms you. So, like, all, <laughs> all anthropologists are supposed to ha- have, you know, arthritis, and econ- economists are all broke, you know, and so, yeah, so many yeah. memory experts don't have, don't, can't remember anything. <laughs> um, so, so it, it, in the beginning of your book, you made an interesting, which you wouldn't, uh, I guess you wouldn't think that, um, intuitively, you wouldn't think you would need to do this, uh, but... But um, you have to you you kind of made a defense for memory, and uh-huh. it does make sense because it was this is one of my grievances with my I just told you last time I was not a very good uh-huh. student I never paid any uh-huh. attention in school I just you mm-hmm. you couldn't get me to care I had it in my head that I was going to be a stand up comedian since about the age of nine or ten really? and that's, that's about good. when I kind of dropped and, out and probably and, everybody told you not to do that right that's, that's crazy <laughs> I didn't tell anyone because oh, really? I knew they would have. <laughs> Um, and, uh, uh, but, but one of the frustrating things with, I mean, I was very, very mm-hmm. good at math, came very easy mm-hmm. to me and it just like made sense to me. And I mm-hmm. guess I kind of understood the usefulness of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, where I really struggled was things like, um, memorizing all of these, which is certainly at the time definitely seemed like useless mm-hmm facts to me and and why i need to know this year that columbus came here uh-huh. or whatever else when when i was young i i didn't um you know it didn't it, now you know i i read a book like uh, i've been reading this book um sapiens a brief history of uh-huh. humankind that's uh, fantastic and and this guy just does he does uh uses a lot of historical examples to talk about um to explain kind of our our human nature and how our brains evolved and everything. And I'm like, oh, this is this is why history is uh-huh. important. But but when I was young, I, sure. I didn't understand. I was like, why do I why do I need to remember all of this? And and it does seem like uh, um, education is starting to in in um, some fields or from from some people's perspective, a, a lot of people are saying, oh, you don't need to memorize all this stuff anymore so so the argument is that uh you don't especially now with with technology with google with wikipedia why would you need to know anything you can always look it up okay and uh, first of all you know i love wikipedia i love google use them all the time they're very they're very useful tools but in the book i make an argument that it's still important to learn some stuff um now that may not justify (laughs) the way that they taught it to you or the methods or, right. or, or something like that. But if you look at anybody who's an expert in his or her field, 
that person knows a lot of information. And that's one of the things we see in expertise uh, research. So if you talk to an anthropologist, for example, you will be impressed by how much the anthropologist has committed to memory, how much that, that person knows. Uh, even, even if that person says, um, oh, I don't, I don't remember that much, or I look stuff up, if that person is, uh, is performing, then that person knows a lot of, a lot of things. They have, you know, uh, through study, through exposure, through repetition, they have a lot of inf- information. So, um, so it's not true that people don't need to know, to know stuff. For one thing, we know that people's problem-solving abilities is related to the depth of their knowledge to, to a field. So we think that you can have uh, abstract problem-solving skills that aren't related to any factual uh, factual knowledge, um, and uh, maybe that's true a little bit in math. But even even mathematicians know a lot of know a lot of stuff. They mm-hmm. have to you know they have a lot of formula and stuff committed to to memory. But if you so if you wanted to know why the Civil War was fought, you would have to know a lot of facts about the Civil War to be able to reason about it. You wouldn't w- want to be able to be looking up every single fact. Now, it's true... You, you have to have a sense of, like, the chronological sure, order in which... you have to know when things, things, things happen. happen. Right, right. And, and you have to be able to compare across the things. So the other day, the, um, the head of Volkswagen said that, you know, this is the worst scandal in 80 years of our history. And I'm thinking... Volkswagen, 80 years ago? What, what was going on in Germany 80 years ago? Why, why would this be the worst thing that, that, that you could say about Volkswagen, right? And so you'd have to have some sense of history to be able to draw that conclusion. So, so chronology, chronology can be important. Now, if you look at, um, so I actually did some research looking at tests that were given to ninth graders in the state of Ohio in the 1910s and the 1920s. And it was kind of interesting because it, they were everybody's worst nightmare about fact memorization. So what they would ex- so there would be questions in, on the history test about uh, the Civil War, and the questions were things like, you know, what were the five major battles of the Civil War? Name the generals on each side and the outcome of each of, of each campaign. Right? There were no questions on it about why the Civil War was fought, you know, what were the consequences of it. It was all memorization. So that's definitely a mistake. On the other hand, if you want to ask questions like why was the Civil War fought, you do, in fact, have to know something, something about it. Right. So I think that um, education without memory uh, is barren because you do need to have some information. Education that's only memory is also is also buried. Maybe I say education without memory is, is futile because you can't. You know, if you try to do problem solving without some knowledge, it's futile. Um, if you only do knowledge, then it's then it's barren. Uh, the other example I think, which which really shows where memory is is important, is foreign language learning. You cannot learn a foreign language mm-hmm. without committing a lot of information to to memory. So this is, but so this is not a plea to go back to, you know, old-fashioned methods and things like this. But it is to say that, yeah, in fact, you do need to, to, to know stuff about, about the world. I mean, you, you Well, to take in new information, sure. you have to have some foundation to put sure, the new sure. information and, on. And you undoubtedly have met people in your life, all, everybody who's someone who's startlingly ill-informed about something that you think they should know about and, and probably has opinions about it and doesn't occur to them that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they should look it up in that, in, yeah, in that yeah. case. 
place, you know. Um, you know, it's, it, facts are important, and, and we, de- we do need to know some of them. So, so um, I think it's a mistake to tell people that memory is not part of education. But by the way, skills require memory too. So even if you're learning, you know, the, uh, even a motor skill is, is motor information that's remembered in your brain. So learning how to ride a bicycle or juggle or dance or something like that, that is all memory. Right. So, so this argument that memory is irrelevant is I, I took a very strong line, line against it. Now, obviously, as we get older, I, I discover when I speak to older audiences, you don't have to convince them that memory is important. They, they figured it out. They're, they're getting worried. Right. Uh, but for younger people, for people in education, there is this myth that um, you don't have to do, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to learn anything. So, and the reverse you know. is kind of true. Where, like, I remember I did a lot of factory work, and mm-hmm. um, and to, as far as kind of remembering mm-hmm. processes and every, mm-hmm. and and kind of understanding the importance of certain things and why things would. It, it really helped to understand why you would do a certain function uh-huh. would really uh, sure. or, or, or procedure rather sure. um, uh, that would really help remember oh, and, and perfect that procedure. That, you know, I, I worked in manufacturing, putting, uh, you know, cutting parts for furniture or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would go down and work on the assembly line sometime and I'd be yeah. like, oh, sure. that's why we right. do that one part. Or, no, it, you know, it, drive it, a forklift sometimes. Oh, that's why we... Right. track no, things that way it, it's absolutely true if you can under, if you understand context if you understand the relationship between things it definitely uh, improves your memory and some you know sometimes that's a problem because sometimes it's so it's hard to convince a middle schooler that learning introductory algebra is is important right, right. Um, it, but it obviously is important because you know if you don't master algebra in school then there's a whole you know whole areas of careers are closed to you if you can't you know you can't become a nurse you can't become you can't go into the sciences or engineering um so it is important but it, you know we do sometimes have a problem motivating the, the things so you know people, teachers make efforts to try to relate them to to things the students know things that say the students are, are useful but um, I do have to say is not all learning is going to be fun. And right. I can't, you know, I can't, you know, if you, um, you know, once again, if you're learning Spanish, you're going to have to learn the irregular verbs. And, and there's just no fun way to do it. Yeah. You know, that's your goal. If you're, you know, if you're motivated, but if you're motivated, you'll do it. The pro- I mean, the problem with one of the problems with foreign language teaching is we teach it to the least motivated people in America. Right. We teach it to high school students. Right. right. We, we should either you should either do it to elementary school kids or before preschool kids. Or you should teach it to adults. Adult, you know, uh, and adults can learn languages. I mean, languages, languages are. It's possible. You you will have trouble with accents as an adult, but you'll be much more motivated than you were when you're 15 uh, if you if it's something you want to do. And and uh, it's definitely definitely doable. You definitely can learn a foreign language. Yeah, it's it's interesting the various factors that go into motivation as uh-huh. well. Like, and I'm sure there's all sorts of individual mm-hmm. differences. Like for me, I, I guess I've I've kind of been a bit of like I've, I've been pretty rebellious or a bit sure. of a contrarian my whole life and. Mm-hmm. And it's like everything. Whenever I have to do something, uh-huh. I'm, I sure. like cannot get myself. Even if it's something that uh-huh. I typically enjoy doing, mm-hmm. I, I keep on. I have this habit mm-hmm. of of uh, you know, like I'm just going to do what I want 
with uh-huh. my life and and make a living off of like telling jokes or whatever. <laughs> and then once you do that, and then it's like, oh, now I have to tell jokes. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I, I don't enjoy this process. <laughs> sure. I'm just ruining sure. everything that I love. And they're like, oh, I'm really interested mm-hmm. in science. I'll, I'll do this sure. podcast. And now I'm forced to. Right. Uh, there's something, in, so and a, that might a, be me more than no, a lot no, of people. No, 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 it's a real phenomenon. It's the extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation factor. And uh, it's certainly true Intrinsic motivation is so much more powerful and so much more wonderful than extrinsic motivation. If you do something because you want to do it, you learn something because you want to do it, you're, you're studying a foreign language because you want to learn that language, you're going to make that ex- extra effort. When it's extrinsic, you try to figure out, okay, what's the minimum amount I can, I can possibly do to get away with? So there's definitely, definitely a difference. The, the problem is that sometimes we, from, we draw the conclusion from that that we would never need to have extrinsic motivation. But as I said... You know, kids got to learn how to read and write. Kids have to, you know, people have to learn things. People have to show up at work. You know, so so um, extrinsic motivation is is going to be part of the of the process. So, in, uh, you know, my ar- argument is instead of ignoring extrinsic motivation, let's try to use it as uh, efficiently as we possibly can because it's not going to go go away. Hey, I I got the best job in the world. Being a college professor is the best job in the world. Is mm. I say something at home, no one listens to me. I say something <laughs> in a class, everybody writes it down. You feel so much more important than you really are, right? But if you know, if the state of Ohio said, "Hey, we're not going to pay you any <laughs> anymore." And you know, I I I might hesitate to show up as <laughs> yeah. I show up at work, you know. So, so right. um, you know, extrinsic motivation is a real is a real factor. Um, we could probably use it better than than we do, um, but we can't we can't ignore it. It's not going to go away. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I think your um, foreign language example, mm-hmm. I mean, re- really makes such a great case for mm-hmm. the importance of of memory. I mm-hmm. mean, it's obviously impossible to uh-huh. imagine attempting to speak a foreign sure. language without having memorized these new words. Right? Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of? Um, Vocabulary oh, in, okay. in in learning. Sure. So so one of the things. This is only because this is something that I'm a bit insecure about, uh, and I. You uh, mean vocabulary uh, in general or foreign language vocabulary? Oh, vocabulary in, in general. general. Okay. I I was kind of uh, I was raised in a, a working class family, uh-huh. and and my family doesn't have the biggest vocabulary uh-huh. in the world. Um, I think they'd be more than happy to admit that. Uh-huh. Um, and I and I definitely it's something that I've, I've tried to work on, but, uh-huh. uh, but it's, it's not my strong suit. Well, you seem to find it as far as I can tell. But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, so vocabulary is really, uh, really important. There's a lot of interesting things to say about vocabulary. But, so one of the things we know is that vocabulary is uh, correlated with academic achievement. So generally, uh, students who have uh, more education have bigger vocabularies. And of course, the problem with correlational research is, is that cause and effect. Do you have a bigger vocabulary because you uh, went to school longer or did you go to school longer because you had a bigger vocabulary? And those, those kinds of questions are hard to, to uh, sort out. But it's very clear that you, your vocabulary affects your ability to understand things that are going on around you, what people are saying, uh, to communicate with people, and, and so forth. Um, so... So one of the interesting things about vocabulary actually has to do with the English language itself. And so this is a hypothesis that was proposed by David Corzon at uh, Toronto University, the University of Toronto. And he argues that English is what we call a diglossic language, which means that English is a language that actually has two vocabularies uh, based upon the history. There are some other languages uh, are also said to be diglossic. But in the case of English, 
you have an Anglo-Saxon English, which is an English that everybody speaks. Uh, and then you have a Greco-Latinate uh, vocabulary, which is the language of business and the academy. Uh, and so the great examples of this historically is the King James Bible is written in Anglo-Saxon English. Uh, and this is the, still the preferred Bible used by many Protestant churches to this day. Shakespeare was a Renaissance writer, and Shakespeare was uh, influenced very much by Latin and Greek and has a lot of Latin and Greek, uh, Greek terms in it. And many people find Shakespeare unapproachable, or at least you have to work in order to approach Shakespeare, whereas almost everybody can understand, any English speaker can understand passages in the King James Bible. You know, there's a few these and thous and stuff, but pretty much we can understand them. And the idea is that uh, you, there's an, ang so it has to do with our history, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxons were conquered by the Normans, the Normans brought in French, but then later on during the Renaissance, you have all this academic, uh, scholarly, um, higher class vocabulary that's, that's imported and lays on top of it. So, so your ability to master that second, to penetrate into that, that Renaissance, Latin, Greco uh, vocabulary is going to affect your ability to succeed uh, in, in the academy, for instance. Can you, can you master the kinds of language that we use in college where more of our terms are going to be deri derived from that? So, so vocabulary does, and it is it's definitely related to social class. Um, you know, very famous studies looking at the vocabulary that kids are exposed to as young as young children. So we know, mm -hmm. for instance, there's, there's a huge gap in the, just, the, just the number of words that children hear based upon, uh, upon social class. If your parents are college-educated uh, you know, academics or into, you know, professionals, you're going to hear a much richer vocabulary in home than if your parents were high school dropouts. Yeah, I thought some of these numbers were interesting that you mentioned of the uh, professional family, an average child would be exposed to 215,000 words a week. Mm -hmm. And the working class home, which I guess I'd fall into that category, would be exposed to 125,000 words, uh, which that's uh, just over half as many. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in a family where um, uh, welfare was a main... Uh, means of support, a child is exposed to only 62,000 words per week. Right, so, so. so they're both, both the total number of words is different and then also the richness of the vocabulary is, uh, is different. So, one, uh, so there's evidence to believe or reason to believe that one of the best interventions we can make is to try to get as many kids into uh, or to have language-rich experiences when they're, they're young. So encouraging parents to read uh, encouraging uh, getting kids into high quality uh, preschool programs, things like that, where you know people read to them, where they're exposed to a higher level of vocabulary. Uh, you know, there's evidence to suggest that that might have a big effect upon upon kids' long term outcomes. So, uh, so, so y y you kind of have, you made some points about how um, like learning the Latin and and mm -hmm. uh, Greek origins of uh -huh. words can can help understand new so, terms. Yeah, well, it's not even so much learning the origins. Clearly, that, that helps. I mean, if you know a little Latin or a little Greek, you know, it helps you. But even just being exposed to, the, to, mm. to those, those words. So it's not, you wouldn't necessarily have to be a Latin student. I'm not necessarily adv advocating that we go back to having Latin as a required, uh, required <laughs> subject. Um, but um, just being comfortable in that vocabulary, knowing 
those uh, knowing those words, uh, you know, as English words, those words that have that or origin, is you're much less likely to hear uh, those those words in a you know non-professional, non-academic uh, context. Mm. Well, it seems it seems like it would be beneficial if you were just like for fun. If you just, oh, sure. if you're like, oh, I want to learn a second language, maybe well, that would I, be I, one I of the more beneficial. I, I don't discourage people from learning. I encourage people to learn whatever language you're interested in. So, if ancient languages uh, <laughs> is part of what you're interested in, absolutely go for it. Uh, there, there are more resources to learn second languages now than there've ever been. I mean, it's never been an easier time to learn a, to learn a second language. And I'm sure uh, I don't I don't know this for a fact, but I I, I can almost guarantee that if you go online, you would find a large community of Latin learners, say, and you could fall right in with people who are, I bet, I bet you there are blogs <laughs> in Latin, written in Latin that you could read. Um, yeah, I had a guest on Hillary Anger, Elfenbein, uh, um, uh, and uh, a professor in St. Louis, and she, she got a master's in Sanskrit. And she ah. said it was like the most beneficial. That's interesting. Thing. The Sanskrit's one of the languages that I'm actually interested in. Oh, so really? really? Yeah, that's. Are you learning it? I am sl- very slowly. Actually, yeah. I'm going to India in January, so I'm learning Hindi right now, a little bit of Hindi right now. So, you know, how many languages are you? dabble in a bunch. I dabble in a bunch. I can't say I'm really fluent in them. So, I, so uh, Japanese, uh, Hindi, Sanskrit, and uh, Esperanto are my big interests. Aren't you worried your brain's going to fill up? No, actually, good, good, good lead on question. So no, there's no evidence that you break. There, there is evidence that um, for people who are uh, polyglots, people who speak more than one uh, language, that there does seem to be uh, some limit that they can be fluent in at any one time. So generally, people can do well in maybe six or seven languages. But there's a lot of people who know more languages than that in the background that they can call back. At, at times, so you read about people who have, you know, twenty, thirty languages um, of which they can they can call back with a little st- with a little study. So no, your brain doesn't fill up with uh, with information. There's no, in fact, contrary to what you think, the more you know, the easier it is to learn new information. The more you know is that if you ha- the more information you have, the easier it is to make associations with new information. So quite the contrary, what you think. Your brain is not like an attic where you, if you push in a new fact, an old fact uh, falls <laughs> out. Uh, your brain is, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a network of connecting information. We have no evidence that your brain becomes full at some, at some point. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Could you, I, I liked um, some of the stuff about uh, well, just going into learning a little more in general, um, you you talked about the difference between non-associative learning uh-huh. and associative learning, and then observational uh-huh. um, learning. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I thought I thought it was just interesting the idea of um, the difference between habituation and uh, and sensation. Oh, okay, sure. So so the um, so there's a hierarchy. So in the learning literature, there's a hierarchy. Of of learning, and uh, at the earliest forms, of, so the, the the simplest forms of learning, ones that we find in almost all life sort forms, certainly in all life form that has uh, has a nervous system, even very simple nervous systems, and maybe in some protozoans as well, but certainly even even creatures that don't have brains but have nervous systems are a process called sensitization and, and habituation. So habituation is uh, an animal learns to stop re- responding to some stimulus. So, you, so uh, 
So my ex nags me, and after a while, I start tuning. You, you tune it her out. out. Yeah, you tune it, tune it out. Right. That that would be an example for for us, right? I don't think sponges have to worry about that. But uh, the uh, but yeah. So I don't know. But so so we clearly we so some of our behavior is reflexive, uh, and the the simplest forms of learning are modifications. So the non-associative learning are modifications of simple modifications of reflexes. So you have a reflex to jump when, uh, when someone taps you on a shoulder. But mm-hmm. if they tap you on a shoulder long enough, you habituate to the stimulus and you learn not to, not to jump. So it's not associative. That is, you're not making an association between different stimuli in the environment. You're just learning to tone down a response. Okay, sensitization is the opposite thing. Sensitization is that you have a, you have a reflex response and it gets stronger. Because it's been because it's been stimulated. In fact, mm. some people think that this might actually be related to PTSD. That what happens in PTSD is people are becoming sensitized, more sensitized to stimuli, and it might be a a, a failure of um, a proper sensitization. Um, so that's uh, so that's very simple learning uh, called a non-associative learning. Associative learning was a higher a form of learning, and that would be uh, Pavlovian conditioning, or what we call classical conditioning. Uh, I could go on for this for hours. I do it with my poor stu- students because people have <laughs> lots of misunderstanding. They confuse it with operant conditioning. Classical conditioning is when you uh, you take a reflexive behavior and you learn to give that reflexive behavior to a new stimulus. So the classic example of Pavlov's dogs with meat, right, is that the dog automatically had a a reflex. It learned to salivate it when it saw the meat, but it learned to salivate when it heard the bell because these things were paired with each other. Mm. And that's learning, and from an evolutionary point of view, it's very valuable because what you're learning is you're learning that some stimuli in the world are predictive. So the bell predicts food, so therefore I need to get ready to, to eat. Obviously, you don't think, think it through that way, but you're learning that there are correlations in, uh, in the world. Uh, operant conditioning, which, you know, is often, which is often confused, is the idea that your behavior becomes shaped by its consequences. Uh, so it's also called Skinnerian conditioning. It's most associated with B.F. Skinner's work, though it wasn't discovered by him. Uh, but the idea is that you do something and it has a consequence. And whatever that consequence is, it's going to affect whether you do more of it or do less of it. So whether mm. it's reinforced or whether it's punished. So if you do something and it has a reinforcing consequence, the probability that you'll do it again in the future increases. Um, the, difference is, uh, it's, it's, uh, the difference is in classical conditioning, the behavior comes first. The behavior comes, and then the consequence of the behavior is going to shape whether that behavior occurs in the in the future. And then there are higher levels to the learning hierarchy. We go on. Um, uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I remember when I first started headlining uh-huh. um, uh, in in comedy clubs, and I got free drinks. And it was this turned uh-huh. into like this Pavlovian response. Uh-huh. Where I was like, "Ooh, I'm at a comedy club <laughs> now. Oh, I'm going to drink." Uh-huh. And then after a while, I had the Operant, where I was like, oh, now this is getting out of hand and uh-huh. having negative consequences uh-huh. on my life. So I, I guess uh, it's interesting how sure. how flexible it can be with... Um, sure. So all these things work together. In, in real-world situations, you have often have operant conditioning and classical conditioning uh, and sensitization. You have all these things working simultaneously, or sometimes you're working at different at different levels. So um, you know, it's easy for us to isolate them in the laboratory or in the classroom, but real world situations, it's you know you have to parse it out very carefully. But it's but it's important stuff. I mean, I, I I will tell you that the gambling industry 
understand psychology. Yeah. They, you know, there is a reason why a, uh, a slot machine looks a lot like a Skinner box. It has a lever that you press, and it rewards you at certain intervals right. and so, so forth. Um, they, they understand the science very, very well. The gamblers don't. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's interesting um, uh, how little conscious control you have sure. over oh, yeah. some of the stuff like, yeah. like you don't get to pick which is habituation and which is right. sensitive uh, sensitization like i i have a i have very um uh, this is awkward but i have very sensitive nipples because uh-huh. in high school we had a we had uh-huh. a guy jared layman used to always go around giving everyone <laughs> titty twisters and that, well, i didn't habituate to uh, it so, at all I, uh-huh. I had the opposite response uh-huh. and to this day i'm very skittish of anything going any, interesting. anywhere interesting. near so, but you don't have a lot of conscious control sure, over no, like you don't true, get to true, pick true. so which, i mean well so think about your phobias right so phobias right. are there, there are two things that affect phobia. So one is that some of the f- elements of the phobia are hardwired into us. That's why you know, the list of phobias are common. So scared of spiders, scared of things that are going to kill you, right? Spiders, even, even though in the U.S. there's hardly right, any right. So poisonous pe- spiders More people die every year in the, in the United States from uh, contact with electrical outlets. But nobody <laughs> has a phobia to it. To right, right. Um, but we do have phobias to snakes and spiders and things like that, even though we're, we don't come in contact Electricians with Electricians have phobias. Perhaps, <laughs> well, you, you definitely can develop possible. them. So you definitely can develop yeah. them. Um, but so it's a combination. So oftentimes you have that that preparation, and uh, the preparation, uh, and then you have some classical conditioning, right? So you see the stimulus, or the, the spider bites you, right? Or the dog uh, barks and creates anxiety, right? And then you generalize that to all dogs, right? So you you know, so if as a child the pit bull attacks you, maybe this is unfair. I, told this unfair to pit bulls, but the large dog attacks you, right, and bites you, um, that sets off your response, and now you're you're scared of the neighbor's chihuahua, right? right? I mean, this happens a lot when, with, uh, I mean, this is one of the big problems with the news, where they Uh take, uh, you know, pit bull is a good example, because, you Uh know, you see one story in the news, and then you're like, oh, all pit bulls are scary, or... uh-huh. It, it, this happens with all sorts of you know criminal behavior on oh, the sure. news or what it, it kind of right. Uh, so even though crime has been going down, if you ask people, they'll tell you they think crime is going because down because now there's a 24-hour oh, news sure, cycle sure. and, and, and they're looking cli- for any little right. and, and bit of salience. A, right, that they you live can in a country of 300 on. million people. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And uh, yes, yes, there is you know there is crime. And right? now everyone's terrified of right. a bunch of stuff that isn't statistically, sure. and no one's scared of like heart disease sure. or <laughs> right. No, it's true, true. And a lot of that has to do with what you know. I mean, a lot of this is you know gets more into evolutionary psychology about what we're primed to be. Uh, to be scared of. So things that are, you know, that are mediant, salient, uh, bloody, and so forth, we pay a lot of attention to them. We're not so good at paying attention to risks that are, you know, 30 years out and so forth. It's always easier to go to the donut shop than the gym. You know, it's just, you know, we're, we're kind of programmed that way. So. I'm curious uh, what you think, and this, uh, you know, I, I don't know, you, you may or may not have much to say about this. I, it wasn't necessarily in your book or anything but i'm curious what you have to say about um memory's role in um 
in consciousness, uh, mm. kind, of, kind of regarding some of this stuff. It, like one of the things that I thought was really interesting yeah. was the the idea of latent learning. Uh-huh. I, I had never heard of uh, before. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't. So, I don't know if you can uh, quick talk about that. I just found it fascinating, like the rat maze study. Right. So, so the idea that you can learn something even though there's not particular consequences to it, and and I mean, the whole story about latent learning it was a big episode in uh, psychology because many people thought because of the the dominance of of the behaviorist perspective, and I'm uh, behaviorism certainly has you know, made a very important contribution to psychology. But there was this idea that you learn things because of their consequences. Uh, so the latent learning experiment was, a, uh, was an experiment where rats were allowed to explore mazes um, with no reward. Uh, and then when they were given a task to, that allowed them to, that, where they were forced to learn the maze, those, ma- those rats who had just spent time wandering through the maze did a better job. They learned it faster. So clearly they were learning something even though there was no reward. Now, that seems obvious to us today, but at the time there was this really big emphasis that you learn because, always because of the consequences of, of, of your learning. So this was a big, uh, you know, a, a big conceptual shift in, in psychology because it meant that we, that we could learn something, uh, that we learned something just through our experience even though there was no direct consequence. And I think that's, that's certainly true. Now, the, the question of consciousness, of course, is a big... Yeah, big, yeah. Big question. So I'm not sure how far you know, and, and to some I'm st- stepping outside of my expertise. I think right. it's, I think it's an absolutely fascinating question. Uh, clearly, one of the things that happens with memories is that we bring memories into consciousness um, and we hold on to them. So, so short-term memory, or what what most psychologists now call working memory, actually refers to the information that you're holding in consciousness at a given instant. So, so in in common parlance, we'll often say, "Oh, I knew it for about a week." and I forgot it was only in short-term memory. Um, that's actually not what psychologists mean when they talk about short-term memory, or, or, and that's one of the reasons why they're switching to working memory is to try to, try to straighten this out. When what they're talking about is that memory that goes on where you're just holding that information before your conscious awareness. So you hear a phone number on the radio, and you're holding it in your memory just long enough to tap it into your phone, that's short-term memory. It's the, it's the information that's, that's being held because it's before your consciousness. Um, so information, as you're experiencing information, as you learn, as you see things around you in your environment, that space where consciousness is being processed is, is essentially your working memory. Some of that information uh, will, will go into long-term memory, and you'll be able to recall it later. Some of that information will never be consolidated, and it will just go away. In fact, most of it will just go go away because you don't remember everything that, you know, every single thing, every single fact that, you know, that, you know, you are just being right. bombarded by this, you know, this huge flow of information right now. And only this tiny trickle of that information gets before your conscious awareness. And only some small fraction of that is going to go into your long-term uh, term memory. Maybe, and maybe none of, of something, you know, I mean, obviously you probably have whole weeks and months of your life where you can't recall. Oh, yeah, years. For more than one reason, <laughs> right, right. But um, so... Uh, so, so consciousness does seem to be bound up with with, with short-term memory. Um, and uh, I, I and also thought it was so interesting that uh, back to the latent <laughs> learning thing, the the idea that um, you can because a lot of learning is very uh-huh. attention-driven mm-hmm. learning. Um, but if uh, I liked the example that you used, the idea of if you try to. 
uh, you know, ask someone how many windows are yeah. in their house. Well, no, no one has ever once went around. Well, uh-huh. very few people have uh, ever sure. uh, went around and, and or, count, or a realtor yeah. or something like, <laughs> counted right. all the windows uh-huh. in, in their house, but they could close but, their eyes and sure. So, and so this is our evidence. So this this is strong evidence. This is the limits of the behavioral approach, right? It's behaviorist said, well, we don't. We just care about your behavior. What goes on in your head doesn't matter. What cognitive psychology taught us, and its important contribution was that no, it's it, you know there's symbolic manipulation in your brain is important. So yeah, if you know, most people are asking how many windows there are in your house or apartment, you're going to call up in a picture of your apartment and you're going to count them. You're going to rotate around your house and count the number of windows, and you'll probably do a pretty good job uh, of it. So you had mm. that information that was late in learning. You you storing that information, even though you didn't consciously do it, that information is there. So clearly your capacity to cognitively manipulate symbols has some important consequences for us as, as, as human beings. Or, or as other animals, too. I, don't, I, mean, I certainly don't believe that these capacities are limited to humans, too. I think other animals must do something very similar as well. Yeah. It's just so interesting, the, this interaction between what our conscious experience is uh-huh. and, and what's going on uh-huh. underneath it. Well, yeah. uh, under, I don't know why we say underneath. It's uh-huh. like, where's conscious? Consciousness seems like it's more like in the middle somewhere, or like surrounded yeah, by, I don't, I don't know. know. We make it sound so- like sub, like lesser, even though most of what our brain's doing is that kind of non-conscious sure. uh, process. But, but the, the idea, like for example, you have a... You ha- you have a, like I'll have an idea for a joke, uh-huh. and it's like nah, not not even worth writing down. Mm-hmm. It, just not a great idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then a month later, uh-huh. that same idea just pops back into my head out of nowhere. But sure. now something's happened to it, and right. it's it's different it's, now. It's, and I, I have the solution. I know right, right. where so, it'll fit. So creativity is really funny that way is that there does seem to be some unconscious component of it because people report that experience. You know, people, creative people, they'll often say, I was working on that problem. I was thinking about that problem. Uh, and then I stopped thinking about it. And then there's the answer. It came to me. So, so that suggests to us that, you know, that there is some processing, even of these very high level things going on beneath our conscious awareness. Um, do you think that some people are more tapped in into some of their non-conscious functions? Because, like, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. for example, synesthesia mm-hmm. in your book, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's it, like, like someone like Daniel Tennant, mm-hmm. uh, who th- this guy can uh-huh. recite pi for up to thirty thousand uh-huh. uh, digits or something like that, for uh-huh. s- just for days straight, he mm-hmm. can sit and recite pi. And uh, and he knows like eleven languages uh-huh. or something like that, and but I I watched a TED talk from him I, I remember years ago and he was he he talked about uh, he was just talking about what his perception is like uh-huh. and he says when he goes to mm-hmm. um you, you know recite pie or mm-hmm. whatever he just closes his eyes and he pictures this landscape uh-huh. of these. The, it's, it's almost, like he actually had paintings of like uh-huh. this is the first thirty digits of pi. This is uh-huh. what it looks like to me, and it's it's like a mountain made up of sure. these odd, colorful oh, shapes. And so, 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 so actually, you know, he's a subject of some controversy about him, and I don't really know how. You know, I've read different conflicting things about whether he's using memory techniques or to what extent he really has 
survivability. So I, I and I'm in no position to judge that judge that other than to say that there is some controversy about his particular talents. But but what he describes actually sounds a little bit like uh, the method of loci, uh, where what you do is you imagine some region, some geographic territory, either real or imaginary, and then you associate uh, uh, information with that. So it's got, sometimes they call it the journey method. So you remember a, uh, a walk that you take, like walking out of the front of your house uh, that you do every day, and you remember things, and then you use those things as association points for associating numbers or other information with. However, um, there is evidence. So, for instance, there are people um, who we call uh, autistic savants um, who have incredible abilities in very narrow areas, but are otherwise cognitively disabled. So the classic examples of this would be people who, for instance, are calendrical calculators, uh, who you give them a date, uh, January 1st or January 2nd, 1842, and they'll say it was a Tuesday. I don't know if it was a Tuesday, but they'll say, and, and they'll right. be right. You know, they'll, and, uh, and yet in other areas, even sometimes in other math areas, they um, don't seem to have... Uh, you know, they, they, they seem to be deficient. So we think that in those cases, what's going on is that they do have some kind of privileged access to some kind of lower level module that, that yeah. figures, you know, that some kind of calculating module and they're able to harness it in ways that other people, that, that other people can't. So I think it probably is true that some people have more. There certainly are differences actually- in ability. I, I absolutely think it's the case uh-huh. just because, and not to go off the defense sure. too much on you, but uh-huh. I've done a fair amount of psychedelics in my ah, life, okay. and I've seen uh-huh. I've seen these landscapes uh-huh. before. Sure. In, in uh-huh. news time, I've seen these like uh-huh. holographic, like con- computer sure. chip seeming lands uh-huh. landscapes that are packed full of information that uh-huh. I when I come out of it I can't I couldn't tell you what it was but when I'm in it so it makes be, absolute perfect sense it would sense. be very interesting to test you during I would, during I would love to do I, that I, yeah unfortunately <laughs> psychedelic research is, uh, is been I, very hard to conduct I, I know it's there, a schedule some, one uh, right, there, a schedule one substance there is some even changes though on cocaine and heroin are scheduled too right. it's crazy to well me. there you know it, uh, you know, I just note that there is an increased interest and there's been an increased willingness in the government to allow psychedelic research and it looks like a very promising area of, uh, of research. It's still very new, so I can't make any strong statements about it, but I think it is a, you know, I mean, if you go back and read the research that was done in the early 60s, um, there was some promising stuff there. Now, the research wasn't that great in terms of the quality, so this, this early studies at Leary and some yeah, people yeah. dead before they got into trouble. Some of those, you know, some of those studies, like effects on recidivism rates and things like that, were really intriguing. It would be interesting to replicate those studies now and see if we get similar kinds of kinds of results. I mean, that's yeah. a, a, that, that's why I I believe uh, that Daniel Tennant is quite genuine because, uh-huh. like, when okay. I saw the pictures that he painted, uh-huh. I was like, oh, I've seen stuff so, like okay. that before. So you've, you've and, been and, there, and you've I've been never, to that I've place, been there, right? and yeah. I've never you've been down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, right. yeah, so, I have. So I'm, I'm in no position to dispute uh, dispute right, any, right, any right. of that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, seem, it seems to me that that's plus. But that would still be—I mean, it would be interesting, you know—the idea that you would have some kind of symbolic mental landscape, yeah. and that information would be attached to that landscape is really intriguing to me. And as I said, it does uh, resemble some of the, the the kinds of techniques that memory experts use in terms of attaching information to locations and, and thinking in terms of locations. Yeah, I mean, it seems like I've always felt like it's just um, it's just like 
constructing a different landscape. Mm-hmm. It's like we construct this perception out here, but our environment is like walls and the sky and sure. that sort of thing. But our non-conscious environment sure. is a series of electrical signals, and, and so it's just sure. kind of interpreting that. Right, uh, you could create it, an imaginary environment. Uh, and some people do this. I mean, some people in terms of their... So, so creating a memory journey to to uh, atta- associate information with is something that people do all the time. So you could take a story, you know, you take, a, take a story like The Wizard of Oz, for instance. Well, there's a journey in The Wizard of Oz. And if, mm. you, if you had seen that movie multiple times and remembered it really well, you remember you know, what, you know, who Dorothy meets first and so forth, you could make associations with each point on the journey and put information in, in there. That's, in fact, how you know, using techniques like that is how people do things like memorize decks of cards and so forth. Oh, you, you know, real quick, uh, and uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to skip back and forth uh, uh-huh. real uh, very sure. quickly to a couple of different things. Um, and, and we're going to, because I want to talk about consolidation of memory, okay. which we talked a little bit about um, be, <laughs> when we weren't recording. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get back to some of that stuff. Sure. Um, but do you have, so, so we talked about, I just forgot to ask when we were talking about the um, kind of importance of vocabulary and mm-hmm. learning. Do you have any tips for that? I started using this program, and I liked it a lot. I just didn't use it enough. Uh-huh. There is this vocabulary.com. Have you, uh-huh. have you no, heard I don't, of that? I don't, haven't used that. I don't know that. that well, it's, it's great because mm-hmm. it'll have all of these different vocabulary mm-hmm. lists, uh-huh. um, you know, like a thousand SAT words or uh-huh. so, something like that. People make uh, It's just a, a ton sure. of different lists and, uh, you know, different reading levels and that sort of thing. Uh, or, or they'll be like, um, they'll take some, um, you know, presidential speech mm-hmm. or something like that, and, and take words out of uh-huh. it and turn that into a list. It's pretty neat. And then, and then what it does is it is it just quizzes you all the time, uh, right? all the time, so, in a bunch of different ways. There's, uh, you know, it'll give you a multiple choice. It'll give you a definition mm-hmm. with a multiple choice of different words, and then it will have. It'll give you a sentence sure. with a blank in it, and give you different words, and then the nice thing is is you can create your own list as long as so, they have the definition. So there are a number it. of software products like this. I'll tell you the two that, that I use, um, though I can't say they're necessarily the, the best, but the mm-hmm. ones that I use, and I, I like them quite a bit. So one is a uh, web service called Memrise, uh, M-E-M-R-I-S-E dot com, uh, and the other one is a program called Anki, which you can download to your computers, A-N-K-I. It's actually Japanese for... Um, uh, for memorizing, uh, you can download it to uh, your computer. You can download it to as an app on your on your smartphone. Uh, and what these uh, programs do is they use the science of forgetting. That is the 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 fact that the forgetting curve, uh, the fact that we forget in a predictable fashion, to figure out how to train you in new uh, in new words. And so you can choose. So you can uh, in the case of memorize. They have uh, vocabularies, like foreign language vocabularies, for instance, that are already programmed in. Uh, I think they probably have English language vocabulary, too. Um, and what it does is every day you go on and you, you're quizzed on words. And it uses, so it uses, it predicts when you're going to forget the word and then it quizzes you on it. And it turns out that quizzing actually improves your memory, too. So being tested on something, forcing you to recall it, improves mm-hmm. your memory. Uh, Anki, uh, you can use preset lists, but you can also uh, put in your own uh, your own words. 
Uh, and, and once again, what it does is it predicts, it, it takes information, it quizzes you on it. In the case of Anki, what it does is it, is it asks you uh, how well, how do you evaluate your memory? Did you, did you not remember this at all? Did you remember it a little bit? Was your memory good, you know, poor, you know, poor good, or great, or something like that? And uh, based upon how you rate your, your performance on each word, it will schedule the word in the future. So if you remembered something really well, uh, so in the in case of memorize, it actually quizzes you on it. Mm-hmm. So if you pass the quiz, the program says, okay, he knows this word. We'll push it out a little bit further. Okay? Right. Uh, uh, he didn't know this word. We're going to ask him about it again tomorrow. Okay? And w- the great thing about these programs is they optimize flashcards, uh, the flashcard technique. In, in other words, instead of having a huge stack of flashcards you, where you go through all of them, which is very inefficient because you know a lot of those cards, already, the software figures out what's the appropriate time to quiz you on it. So, so one of the lessons, I think, of the new memory science is that we can, we, memory is still important, but you can make memory much more efficient. Uh, it, you don't have to work for hours a day. You can work for minutes a day, uh, you know, slowly increasing your vocabulary in English, in any subject, or learning the vocabulary of a particular a particular topic. So I'm very much interested in these, and there's been a big proliferation of them. I wasn't familiar with the particular one that you talked about. It's it's pretty similar. similar. There's like these varying levels. I mean, the tests get a little harder, and then, Uh you know, if if you get something wrong, it'll give it to you again the next day. If you get something right, Right. it'll... it'll, There's like levels of mastery, and it will show you kind of how far And there's there's one called Quizlet, and some of them are nice, like they give you little stars and stuff when you get the answers right. So, you, you know, or they compare you with other people, you know, so you can see, so you can get a little social uh, competition going on there. So, um, so I think this is this is a really big breakthrough uh, with a lot of potential benefit for education, for helping people who have forgetting problems, for learning languages, and so forth. So, I think we can just really make. Um, w- make memory much easier, much less burdensome. Still going to be some work, but uh, so I use Anki and Memorize every day, and mm. maybe I spend five, ten minutes on it. And I put it, so for Memorize, I've got some Japanese vocabulary, I've got some Hindi vocabulary in there now, so I'm trying to, trying to learn that. Uh, with Anki, I put in everything that I think I might want to remember. So, so I become kind of obsessive about when I see a movie now, I put the name of the movie in, because I know that's something I always forget, like two years down the road, Oh, what was the name of that? What was the name of that movie? You know, so now I put right. the name of the movie. I'll write a little description in. The description comes up, and I have to recall the name. The name, and so uh, so people then are very you know are, are are very impressed. Oh, you remember the name of that book you read, or you remember that name of the movie? No, it's all fake. I you know, I just <laughs> I, well, I do remember it, but it, I remembered it because I remembered to put it in the software, and the software predicts what I'm going to forget about it. And usually, it usually does a pretty good job of predicting that. Uh, but then it just keeps coming back to me and uh, gives the impression of having a better memory than uh, you know. So it's a train. That's memory, interesting. So, so in, instead of uh, instead of outsourcing our information right. and knowledge to these external things, right. Maybe we should outsource our forgetting to these. Right. In a way, <laughs> yeah. No, right. That's a, that's a good way to to think about it. And and you know, obviously, you can use it in ways that are that are helpful to you. You may not care about remember. The names of movies or something like right. that, but uh, I, you know, I think they're great for students to use when you got a you got a biochem test.
test or something like that. This could really make students' life a lot, a lot easier. Uh, and I think, I think they would be helpful for older people, too. When you, as we get older and we want to try to remember stuff, I think the software has all kinds of uh, venues for, for really helping us with these kind of mem memory tasks. So, I, that, so I, if there was one biggest message in my book, it's uh, the, the idea of spaced repetition memory software as, as a revolution in, in uh, learning. Could we talk a little bit about, I, I, I want to get back into what we are, um, mm. some, some of the, because you just brought up aging, and I uh, want to get back into what sure. we <laughs> didn't record beforehand. Yeah. Turns out we just have a lot to talk about. Sure. We, we actually could have just skipped over all that and mm. been fine. We're almost, uh, we're almost to the hour mark. But I am curious, and I actually didn't really get too much of a chance to, uh, we touched on it, um, uh, the idea of how memories are, um, are consolidated in, in dream states, and, and then just, mm -hmm. um, it, I mean, anything else in general, I, I took a class called um, Learning How to Learn on, on Coursera, and actually one of the things mm -hmm. that I enjoyed about it, uh, one, of the, one of the points that you made in your book was about the, um, the immediate feedback, uh -huh, the idea yes. of... of uh, you know, ra rather than taking a quiz and then getting it back a week later. Right. Um, right. So uh, I actually use this with my students. I use immediate feedback ratings. So their exams, their scratch off exams. So instead of like filling in the blank and it gets sent off and computer grades it, uh, when they scratch off the right answer, it's the right answer. There's a star right there. And so they know right away whether they got the right answer. Or, or not, and that way the the test becomes a way to teach students, and they they benefit from it more than they would be. They wake a week later, they don't remember what they put down, and and so forth. So it really has, uh, you know, things that you can do to help students. So. Be, because uh, and the idea being that you don't want people remembering the wrong information. Sure. So so one thing is a test can actually cause harm, right? Is that you can you know the student can answer, give the wrong answer on the test. Not know it for it, a week, and right? Then it and, well, gets and, and maybe they, and maybe they never get it back, right? Some universities right. you don't always give your exams back to students, oh, right, right? Right, right. So you for the rest of your life, there's this thing that you think you know, but you don't, <laughs> right? You know, so, yeah. So, um, so now I can't remember what your, uh, what your question was. We're, was. we're going to talk about dreams, and I, I, oh, dreams I don't, I don't know if you. I mean, this wasn't necessarily in your book, but I, I don't know if. You, I mean, because it seems like this is um, right. one of. I, I, it's still quite a mystery why we dream, but right. but one one of the ideas is that this is a consolidation. So yeah, so this is a hypothesis. A lot of mysteries about the brain. A lot of mysteries about sleep. I mean, sleep is this kind of amazing thing. You know, it's like eight hours a day where we're inactive. So you you think from an evolutionary point of view, it must be really really important that we sleep. Otherwise, it seems like really dangerous and stupid thing to to do, right? Why make yourself totally vulnerable to predators for eight or nine hours a day? So one idea is, uh, and there is evidence for that, that is involved uh, in uh, the repair of the brain and also in the consolidation of memory. So we, do, we definitely know that if you learn something and you get a good night's sleep, so you learn something just before you, you go to bed, uh, you'll, you'll have better memory for it. Uh, so there is evidence that, it's, that, that the consolidation of information into long-term memory uh, is facilitated by sleep. 
Uh, and you know, there's a lot of emphasis now about the idea that people need to get sleep. People aren't getting enough sleep. People are sleep deficit. And I think that's all that's all to the good. We have kind of a machismo in America that you know it, that somehow if you say you got eight hours of sleep, there's something wrong with you. You're not working hard hard enough. Yeah, but, yeah. But it's precisely the people who aren't getting the eight hours of sleep who are going to not remember stuff, not perform as well, um, be more you know uh, short tempered and 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 so forth. Um, but Right there, there's often there's often these like uh, uh, that, that that's the very old school uh, <laughs> like like my uh, my dad kind of uh, like I'll sleep when I'm dead kind right, of an right, exactly. attitude that yeah. that people well, it have. Tur- it and, turns out not sleeping will make you dead faster. Yeah, you know, so. a lot of people don't realize that <laughs> yeah. a lot of this stuff is complementary. Sure. Sleep is complementary to sure. work, and work is complementary to sleep. Sure, and, sure. Uh, it, it's I I think that will change as yeah. our as we better understand sure. the non-conscious mind right and and so consolidation is obviously really important in fact we right. we know that there's these structures in the brain the hippocampi which are hippocampus means seahorse which means that uh, with some imagination if you look at these structures in the brain they sort of look like seahorses uh, a considerable <laughs> imagination <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. and it turns out that this structure is critical for the consolidation of uh, of memory and we know that because there are people who've had uh, damage the hippocampus, and as a consequence, either either deliberately through surgery or through uh, illness, the hippocampus has been damaged, and they lose the capacity to form new long-term memories. Yeah, we talked about HM on the uh, on the previous oh, okay, episode. So we went yeah, that. yeah. yeah so. um, well, let, let's talk about uh, uh, quickly the um, the idea of. Uh, because we were just talking about kind of these these programs to um, help help you retain things longer and, and uh, uh, rem- remind you of things so you don't forget. I, I, I liked the section of your book that talked about um, everyone knows about a learning curve, but uh, but there's oh, this the forgetting, forgetting curve, curve as right. well. And 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 maybe um, just because we. I, I don't know. Do you have anything to do? Um, I, I, you, you probably got to have to get going. Oh, no, I got a while, so it's whatever is uh, um, best for you. Well, I, I want to I want to um, talk a little bit about um, interference and uh, and decay and, and decay quickly mm-hmm. and um, and and retrieval. Okay. Um, because this was we talked a little bit about that before we were recording, okay. and then I. What I didn't get to hear about is then what we can what we can do about um, some okay. of this stuff, which which we've already kind of touched on sure. with some of the programs. Okay, so uh, so the idea about interference and decay is why do we forget stuff? Is what's the mechanism for forgetting stuff? And in the course of the history of the science here, the course of the scientific investigations, uh, two theories are proposed. So decay seems pretty obvious. The idea is that the memory gets old and it it, it decays. Uh, decays away. And there's some evidence for that. I mean, clearly we know people who have dementia, for instance, there's clearly physical deterioration of the brain that's related to forgetting stuff. Uh, but there was an alternative hypothesis that was performed really in the early part of the last century, so 1920s, 1930s, and so forth, uh, was the idea that what really causes uh, memory loss is interference, that is new information interfering with the uh, recollection of old uh, information. And, uh, and it was primarily, it was initially through sleep research that, that this idea came up because it was observed that 
if you gave people a list of words to learn, oftentimes nonsense wor words, it's kind of a standard psychological experiment, you give people a list of nonsense words, uh, and then you let them sleep for eight hours, or you gave them a list of nonsense words and they were awake for eight hours, uh, and you tested them afterwards, the individuals who slept for eight hours had better memory than the individuals who were up and going through their, nor their normal day. So the hypothesis was that, well, when you were asleep, you weren't receiving any sensory input, and therefore no information was coming in interfering with, the, with these existing memories. Whereas if you were up walking around, you were getting all the stimulus, learning all this other stuff, and that interference was causing you to have greater, uh, greater forgetting. Now, what happened was uh, that research has been somewhat confounded because now we know that sleep actually plays a role in the consolidation of memory. So, that, uh, so was the fact that people remember stuff better the result of just sleep helps you remember stuff and you can, helps you consolidate the memories, or was it really the lack of new information? Well, we do have uh, evidence of that interference takes place. Uh, so the, the, the tip of the tongue state that I talked about early, mm -hmm. you've all had that experience where you try to remember something and something else comes up. So you, somehow uh, you're not making the right associative path to that piece of information. That, because that uh, what, what, what's the guy's name? So yeah, always... Willie and, Wo and Woody, right? I right. was hoping you're going to forget Woody's name. Oh, that, that time. I would do it. Uh, oh, so you would have been cured. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> but, but but the idea is is that he th that memory right. now interferes with your memory. memory of Willie Nelson. Right, exactly. So 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 I get I get deterred down the wrong associational line, and I for some reason I can't get back to it. Right. Um, and so, so that so interference is a real process. So I would say that my reading of the research is that both processes are involved. Is that sometimes mm -hmm. it's interference, and sometimes it really is a decay of, of memory. So there is evidence that memories do decay over over time. So, so I, I think both hypotheses have some truth to them. Yeah, it, uh, like regarding the um, the decay, it, it's oftentimes that the memory is still there, and it's just. Um, it's it's just a retrieval. Sure. Um, so I, I was telling you off the air about my grandma who's right. 95 and mm -hmm. she has good days and bad days. And one day she might not remember me right. or a different person or whatever. And then other days she has no problem with it whatsoever. And and so sure. the memory is there. And right. a lot so of times so it's, it's we retrieval. know that from our own experience, from once again from the tip of the tongue state, the right. fact that you don't remember it in conversation and then it comes to you. You didn't look it up. Uh, you know, in the middle of the night, you wake up when it can do you absolutely no good at all. There's that piece of information. So it was there all along. You just couldn't, uh, you couldn't retrieve it. You couldn't gain access to it. We, we also have uh, some, there's a phenomenon called relearning memory, which is that uh, if you learn something, even if you don't recall it, oftentimes when you relearn the information, you learn it faster the second time. So say you learn, I don't know, Spanish vocabulary in high school. You weren't motivated, you weren't interested, but you learned some of it. And then you forgot it all, uh, and you decide as an adult that you want to learn Spanish. And you're first saying, I took Spanish in high school, but I don't remember a word of it. What you would discover is that when you tried to relearn it, it would be coming back to you. It would come back to you. You would learn, even sometimes you would just remember it. You say, oh, yeah, now I remember it. But the other thing is that the second time, learning it the second time, it would take you a shorter period of time. We're implying that the information is there somehow. You can't access it. You can't retrieve it. But by learning it again, because those tracks are there, there uh, you're able to, you know, there, there's, always some, there's already something to build on. Right, you know, right. So. 
Um, so, so what are uh, what are some um, techniques? What can we do to um, help out with some of these? I, I mean, you already mentioned some of these uh, so, so, like so, vocabulary programs. Right. So, space repetition software. I'm a big fan of it. I encourage people to investigate it. Very useful for specific tasks. Are there are there other programs other than just like oh. vocabulary? Um, so Based. most of the ones have to do with vocabulary or fact learning. So if you look at Memrise, for instance, or if mm-hmm. you look at Anki, you'll see that there are cards out there. Oh, I see. There, there for subjects. So like you know, academic subjects, for instance, is a big one. So you know, computer programming languages, things that people might want to commit to mem- to memory. Mm. Um, so now sometimes neuroscience. I, 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 I need I, one you know, for I looked, neuroscience. But I, I bet you there is one. I bet you there. Uh, you can look on Memrise and see. I have the hardest time. So 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 what you can do is you could em- you get get a neuroscience dictionary, right, and get Anki and just start entering terms into it and start learning it. You, so you can do mm. it yourself. But I bet someone's got something out there that that you can use. So so that's so that's I think my biggest recommendation is is learning things. I encourage I encourage everyone to be cognitively engaged. Um, as I point out in the book, the evidence on cognitive engagement, that is the use it or lose it hypothesis about memory, is not as well established as we would like it to be. But there is evidence for it. And there's enough evidence for it, and you only got one life to live, that it's worth pursuing. So be cognitively engaged. Be learning stuff. Uh, so studying neuroscience I, it, and stuff, you know, you know, yeah, go ahead. It, well, I mean, it... it it's it's funny because it's always uh, you know I I have um I have a couple of roommates now and um for the first time in like thirteen <laughs> years I have roommates again because of my injury and whatnot but uh but anyhow we will oftentimes sit around and watch a TV program or whatever and it's just like it. It's easy to do, you know. It's like, oh, what are we gonna do? Well, we'll just turn something on. But but instead, I sometimes I sometimes pull out like a board game or something uh-huh. like that to play, where you got to use strategy sure. and there's more interaction between us. And we always have so much more fun and sure. have and it's just so much more stimulating and it's it gets better us to going. Pr- better to participate than to be an observer. It's yeah. always the hardest to. To like to get initiate there. something. Right. Oh, I know that it's it, not so bad actually doing something, right. and then it feels great to uh, uh, have done something. Oh no, it's true. <laughs> you know? That's like you know. So I go to a yoga studio, do this power yoga, and uh, you, uh, the first minute of class, I say, "Remind me again why I'm doing this," and then at the end, I feel great. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, but, yeah, of but, but doing, getting it, is, that, that's hard to get over that little bit, that little hump there is is, is hard for us too. But it's worth doing. So, and that that raises another thing is that uh, health is important. You, help, you know, so if you're concerned about you're concerned about your long-term memory, uh, aerobic fitness, good diet, you know, all the things that are going to prevent you from getting vascular disease uh, is going to help your your memory. So, uh, good you blood walking, flow and good oxygen blood flow. in the brain. Exactly, exactly. You know, yeah. uh, you know, good blood pressure, so you don't get a stroke. You know, all all, the, all those things that uh, that you know, standard uh, advice for healthy living. Um, definitely, definitely going to help you with with your memory. So, so in that case, you know. Um, it's you know the advice is not that that startling. You need to do those things that that are going to help you. Uh, mnemonics are helpful for memorizing particular pieces of information. You know, I just I, I added to my um, Amazon wish list. Uh-huh. I added a couple of of those. That sounded really uh-huh. interesting um, because I actually I, I, I was trying my best mm-hmm. to get through as much material as possible uh-huh. um, for this interview, and so I kind of skipped the uh-huh. chapter on uh-huh. mnemonics. 
uh, sure, because I was going to go back and revisit it. But but I put in my wish list a couple of those. Uh, so so let, let me ask you, these books, they're, they're just like a whole bunch of different mnemonic devices yeah, so, for a bunch of different right, subjects? Right, so, so there's a bunch of books like that, and uh, and some of them are quite good, uh, you know, and I highly, highly recommend mm-hmm. them. In fact, that's one of the reasons I, I only give a chapter to it in my book. But mnemonics have proven to be very, uh, very useful. Uh, for vari- for memorize for a bunch of different memory tests. The, the the limitation is that they tend to be very specific for memorizing specific pieces of information. But yeah, there there are, are dictionaries of mnemonics. Um, there are actually there's a book uh, I think it's called Neuroanatomy Made Ridiculously Simple, which is a book for um, medical students to learn uh, to learn structures of the brain and so forth. So if you wanted to learn some. Uh, neuropsych, neuro, you know, that would be a book to look at. Medical students are particularly good because they, I mean, that's a field where there's a lot of memory, right. mem- memory work. I always say, is I, you don't want your surgeon saying, um, you know, leaning over to the nurse and saying, remind me, which one is the gallbladder, right? Is he, you know, they really need <laughs> to remember that stuff, right? So, so, um, so there are a lot of good mnemonic books for, for medical students who are learning anatomy and physiology and stuff like that. Uh, but there are some good general books, you know, the books by, uh, I like Dominic O'Brien's books books there you know they're very standard so if you wanted to read like a standard memory improvement book that emphasizes uh, mnemonics look look at one of his books they're very you know they're quite and and they're useful they got he's got some techniques in there that'll help you negotiate a bunch of a bunch of uh situations a bunch of information that you might i gotta figure out some mnemonic devices uh to get my listeners to keep on listening each week and Uh, rating and uh uh telling all of their friends i need to figure out some catchy little jingle to remind people to remind people all their friends. Certainly, advertisers figured out that that works. Right? Yeah, right? So, yeah, yeah. You know. um, uh, well, uh, uh, this has been fantastic. Um, thanks for joining me again. Oh, and another fantastic episode with Jeremy Genovese. Make sure and check out his book, Remembering Willie Nelson. No, Willie Nelson is not dead. Uh, it's a book about the science of peak memory. And um, and thank you guys for being curious, and thank you, Jeremy, for being such My a pleasure. wonderful guest. All right, I'll talk with you guys next week. Thank you guys for listening. Next week on the program, tune in. I will go to Ann Arbor to talk with Howard Desai about. Uh, he's an archaeologist at Ann Arbor, um, and he he goes down to Peru all the time to do some archaeology gigs and. Archaeology gigs, archaeology digs, archaeology dig gigs, um, but really interesting stuff, uh, stuff that I am not informed about at all. I'm not a big history buff. Um, I know nothing about archaeology, and so this was a very interesting episode for me. I was a, I was a bit nervous for it because I was just you know a little out of my wheelhouse, and it ended up uh, ended up there's actually a lot of laughs and really interesting stuff very informative and i learned a lot and so will you so tune in next week to howard sigh thank you Hello. 
I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. People. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my- <laughs> <laughs>